When it comes to the tradition of giving gifts, I have no doubt that we all love to receive them, now don't we? We all love receiving gifts. And while there are many gifts that we love to receive, gifts that are intended for the enjoyment of the recipient alone, some of the best gifts are actually presents that are intended to be shared with others. Uh, For example, the gift of a board game, it actually creates the opportunity for fun and fellowship with other people. And so, you know, the the gift of a board game is a gift that is intended to be shared. Uh, How about the gift of a uh, a musical instrument? You know, this kind of gift presents people with the opportunity to share their talents and their songs. The gift of a smartphone is nice because it it actually enables a person to connect with and communicate with others. And so it's a a way of, of sharing, you know, our communications with other people. And then one of my favorites is the baker who creates a beautiful birthday cake for their friend with the intention that that cake is being shared with other people. Have you ever been to a birthday party where the person was like, this cake is all mine. You can't have any of it. No, that doesn't typically happen. I tried that once. And and what I did was when it came time to blow out the candles, you know, I just made sure to get lots of spittle all over the full cake. Nobody wanted to eat it after that. But seriously, you know, a a birthday cake is created as a gift that's designed to be shared with other people uh, there at the birthday party. Well, as we consider these sorts of gifts that are given with the intention of being shared, it's in a similar yet spiritual way that the gospel message of our Messiah is a gift of grace which he's made available to every single sinner. And while it's true that the gospel message is this gracious gift that every sinner can embrace by by faith in Jesus Christ, it's also true that those who have received the gift of the gospel should then also share this free gift with other people. If we've received the gift of the gospel, then we ought to be sharing the gospel of grace with those who haven't yet received the gospel message of grace. With this as the goal, we should take some time to to ask a a very simple question, and the question is this. What's the best way for believers to share the gift of the gospel with others? Well, with this question in mind, we're going to spend our time today considering the way that Paul presented the gospel of grace to those who are willing to listen. And as we make our way through the text before us today, we're going to see, first of all, that the gift of the gospel Well, it should be presented with preaching. Secondly, we'll see that the gift of the gospel should be presented with power. Thirdly, and finally, we'll learn that the gift of the gospel should be presented with persuasion. Well, with this as our outline, let's open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Here we find Paul, he's reminding his readers about the day when they themselves had received the gift of the gospel. And as you make your way uh, to the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that we began our study of this book just last week, and it was during that study, during the, as we looked at the preface of this epistle, we saw Paul commending the Christians there in Thessalonica, and the reason why is because their faith and their hope and their love had become the evidence of their election. Well, now here in our text today, we find Paul, he's Now reminding them about their entrance into their election. And he reminds them about the way that they had received the gospel message and and the way that he had presented it to them. And in light of Paul's approach, 
Well, it's my hope that we might all learn how to present the gospel of grace to the unbelievers around us. With this as the goal, if you would look with me here at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, I want to focus your attention there beginning at verse 5. Here Paul declares, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Now here in this verse, we find Paul, he's reminding the Christians there in Thessalonica about the way that they had received the gospel of grace. Just for the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that our English word, gospel, it finds its origin in the old English words, good and spell. So good spell, which taken together refers to a good story or a good message, or you might just say good news. When we use the word gospel, we're talking about good news. And if we look at the original Greek word, we find a word that speaks of glad tidings that are being communicated when good news is shared. When somebody brings you good news, it's a gospel of sorts. And in the context of the Christian faith, well, the Greek word which is translated gospel, it's used in reference to the good news by which sinners are able to enter into the kingdom of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, before we consider the way that Paul presented the gospel of grace... I should take a moment to address the arguments of those who are insisting that the gospel message which was presented by Paul was different from the gospel message that Jesus proclaimed. You might not know this, but there are people who are making this distinction. In order to make their case, the, uh, the, those who are promoting this point of view, well, they oftentimes appeal to verses where Paul refers to the gospel as his gospel. One example of this is found in Romans chapter 2. It's verse 16 where Paul refers to the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. That's what he says. My gospel. Another example of this can be found in 2 Timothy chapter 2. It's verse 8 where Paul declares, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Okay, so Paul refers to this gospel that he's preaching as my gospel. And in light of these examples, uh, there are those who think that Paul must have been presenting uh, or introducing a different gospel than the good news that Jesus preached. Some even suggest that, you know, the Lord Jesus had his gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, for the Jews, while Paul's gospel was for the Gentiles. Others actually take it even further by accusing Paul of creating a false gospel. Yeah, some take it as far as saying that Paul's gospel was a false gospel because it was different from Jesus' gospel. And typically you find this argument within the Messianic congregations. There are many Messianic Jewish congregations that will insist that the gospel of Paul is a false gospel because it's in conflict with Jesus' gospel. And with all that being the case, we should take a moment to compare the gospel message of Jesus Christ with the gospel message that Paul was preaching so that we can see, is there a real difference between the two? Well, with this as the focus, I want to consider the way that Paul defined the gospel message to, uh, to, to the letter. Uh, actually, we find this definition 
in the letter that he sent to the church in Corinth. And so if you would hold your place here in 1 Thessalonians, uh, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, and specifically let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As you make your way to the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, I just want to take a moment to point out that Paul actually referred to himself as the apostle to the Gentiles, and he, and he referred to himself as the apostle to the Gentiles on a few occasions. And yet at the same time, this is not to suggest that Paul only preached the gospel to Gentiles. As a matter of fact, if you make your way through the second, uh, second half of the book of Acts, what you find is Paul's custom, which was to enter into a city and go straight to the synagogue and present the gospel message to the Jews at the synagogue first. And then upon being rejected by the Jews of that city, Paul would then turn his attention to the Gentiles as he continued to preach the same gospel message. Now with this in mind, I want to consider the gospel that Paul actually preached to both Jew and Gentile alike. If you would look with me here, At 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, we'll begin reading there at verse 1. Here Paul declares, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's defining the main tenets of the gospel message, and he does this by reminding his readers there in Corinth about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which all occurred according to the scriptures. Or in other words, according to all of the Old Testament prophecies, that pointed to the fulfillment of these things. But the gospel, plain and simple, is about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. At the same time, he also reminds them here that the Christians there in Corinth were saved by believing the word that he preached. That they are saved by faith in this truth. He says in verse 2, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So this is a salvation by faith in the gospel message. Those who believe in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ are saved by faith and by faith alone. I think Paul put it plainly in Acts chapter 16, it's verse 31, where he declares, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I love that. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Specifically, believe on the death of Jesus Christ, his crucifixion. Believe upon his burial and believe upon his resurrection and subsequent uh, ascension into heaven. Believe in these things and you are saved by that faith. And listen, this of course excludes then every work. He doesn't say believe and do this one thing. Believe and be baptized. Believe and say the sinner's prayer. Believe and and, and fulfill this sacrament. No, it's simply believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. This excludes the work of baptism, though we certainly uh, encourage every born-again believer to get baptized in water. This excludes the sinner's prayer, though there's nothing wrong with in your moment of faith also crying out to the Lord in prayer. That's fine. 
Just don't trust in the baptism. Don't trust in the sinner's prayer. Don't trust in the sacrament because these are just works. It's by faith that we are saved. We are not saved by our good works. We are saved by grace, which is received by faith in the gospel message. And as we consider the simplicity of Paul's gospel message, we should take a moment to ask, well, was this different from the gospel message that Jesus preached? Is this a different gospel message from the gospel of the kingdom, as Jesus would call it? Well, with this question in mind, let's consider something that Jesus said just before ascending into heaven. And so if you would continue holding your place there in 1 Thessalonians, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the gospel of Luke. If you would, let's turn to Luke chapter 24. As you make your way to the 24th chapter of Luke's gospel account, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the Greek word which is rendered gospel, again, it simply means good news. And so we, we, we find the word gospel, we find this concept of good news being shared in, in several different passages throughout the Bible. But the Lord Jesus actually refers to his message when it comes to uh, the message that he presented before ascending into heaven. He actually refers to this as the gospel of the kingdom, by which he simply means the good news by which sinners can enter the kingdom of God. And it's here in Luke chapter 24 where we actually find the Lord Jesus uh, presenting the instructions for how this message ought to be preached. If you would look with me here at Luke 24, I want to draw your attention to verse 44. Here the Lord Jesus declares, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Here in these verses we find the Lord Jesus. He's encouraging his disciples to go into all the world to preach the message which results in repentance and the remission of sins. And and according to the Lord here, this message was centered around the suffering of our Savior, which, remember, occurred there on the cross, followed by the resurrection from the dead, which took place on the third day. Now, hmm, where have we heard this before? Where have we heard this message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, it kind of sounds like the gospel message that Paul was delivering, right? This is exactly the the message that Paul was preaching. This is exactly the message that he called the gospel. And even the Lord Jesus refers to this message as the gospel. As a matter of fact, it's in Matthew 24, in, in Matthew's parallel account, where the Lord Jesus actually refers to this message as the gospel of the kingdom. As a matter of fact, it's Matthew 24, verse 14, where the Lord Jesus declares, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So yeah, the gospel of the kingdom uh, that is mentioned here in Matthew 24 is the same message that Jesus preached in Luke 24 when he talked about the suffering of our Savior and then his resurrection from the grave, which results in repentance and the remission of sins. The message that our Savior instructed his disciples to preach 
is the gospel of the kingdom. And this was also Paul's gospel, the gospel that he called my gospel. Why was it his gospel? Because he owned it. He he claimed it for his own. He took it and preached it faithfully. Seeing how this is the gospel of the kingdom, which is focused on the death, burial, and resurrection of our Redeemer, we can be certain that uh, the gospel message of Jesus Christ was also the gospel message that Paul preached. Not only that, but we can also be certain that those who try to convince us that Paul was preaching another gospel, well, they're at best confused Christians. And at worst, they're false teachers who are attempting to mislead us by leading us back to the law of Moses. Either way, I want to continue to make my case by considering a statement that Paul made in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's beginning in verse 17 where Paul writes this. He says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved... It is the power of God. According to Paul, he was faithfully preaching the gospel message that Christ sent him to preach. He didn't make up his own gospel. He was preaching the message that Christ sent him to preach. And according to him, Christ didn't send him to preach a message of salvation through baptism. No. Christ sent him to preach the gospel, which is focused on the cross of Jesus Christ. And while it's true that this message of the cross is the good news by which sinners can be saved, it's also true that the gospel message will sound like foolishness to those who are too proud to repent. That's right. The message of the cross, the gospel message of grace, it will sound like foolishness to those who will not repent. Not only that, but listen, the people who think that this message is foolishness will think that you are foolish for believing it. Yeah, don't be surprised when in the presentation of the gospel, someone thinks that you're foolish for believing these things. They think the message itself is foolishness. So anybody that embraces this message, well, according to them, they must be foolish. We shouldn't be surprised if we find ourselves face-to-face with those who think we're foolish for presenting the gospel of grace. And yet at at the same time, listen, this is the message that we've been called to present with clear communication. And in order to explain what I mean, let's turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. It's here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and and we're going to look once again at verse 5, because it's here where Paul declares, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Now, as we begin to take a closer look at this verse, well, we must not fail to recognize that the presentation of the gospel message, it most certainly included words. Now, Paul says here, our gospel did not come to you in word only. So it wasn't just with words. And yet, Paul is certainly implying here that the gospel message was most certainly presented with words, just not only words. Listen, we have to understand here that in order to present the gospel message of grace, we have to use our words. That's right, we have to use words. In order to preach, 
you have to use words. Uh, the, the, a true, proper presentation of the gospel message must include the clear communication of well-reasoned words. And with this as the goal, we would do well to remember that the Lord is calling us to preach the gospel. There are those who think, well, I'll just go out and live a good Christian life, and then the people around me will just recognize the gospel message in the way that I'm living. I don't know, I don't know if it really works that way. I doubt that it does. You know, someone might look at your wonderfully wholesome, holy life and think, that's a pretty good Mormon right there. You know, I bet they're a Jehovah's Witness. You know, like, like just, just because you're living a wholesome life doesn't mean that you're automatically a Christian. We have to present the words of the gospel message. We have to preach the words of the gospel. We have to proclaim the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ so that they might understand the gospel of grace. I like the way that the Lord Jesus put it in Mark chapter 15, uh, 16. It's Mark 16, verse 15, where Jesus says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We've been called to preach the gospel. The Lord Jesus has called us to go and present the gospel message by preaching the truth of the gospel to those who will listen. And those who believe and receive the gift of grace by which sinners are saved, well, we should turn around then and continue sharing this gift. With this as the goal, we should make sure that we know how to preach the gospel message with clear communication. We need to understand what the Bible says about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and not only that, as we go out and preach with clear communication about the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have to make sure that we're preaching in the power of the Lord. Now, this brings us to our second point, because listen, the gift of the gospel should not only be presented with preaching, but the gift of the gospel should be presented with power. And with this as the focus, let's take another look at the statement that Paul presents here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you would look with me once again at verse 5, because here Paul declares, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. Now I want to stop right there. I want to consider what it means to present the gospel with power and with the Holy Spirit. With this as the focus, it'll first help you to know that the word power found there in the middle of verse 5, it's translated from the Greek word dynamis, which is the basis for our English words dynamic and dynamite. The original Greek word was used of the supernatural power for performing miracles. Not only that, but the same Greek word was also used of the power that's needed for accomplishing the will of God. You might not know this, Christian, but it's true. We need the power, the supernatural power of God to accomplish his will. If you think that you can accomplish God's will in, the power, uh, in, in your natural power, in your natural energy, uh, you're in for a rude awakening. And it's sad that so many Christians find this out you know, too far down the road. A lot of Christians try to serve God in their own strength, in their own wisdom, in their own power, quickly find out that it's impossible. We can't accomplish the will of God by our own power. We need supernatural power from the Lord. 
And when it comes to presenting the gospel of grace, we need supernatural power. We need to preach the gospel message by the dynamic power of God. I like the way that Paul put it in Romans chapter 1. It's in verse 16 where he declared this. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. In other words, the gospel message of Jesus Christ, it is the dynamic power of God by which sinners can be saved. And while some insist that there's one gospel for the Jews and another gospel for the Gentiles, Paul assures us here that, no, there's one gospel message. It's the gospel of Christ, and it is the power of God for salvation for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Simply put, the gospel message of Jesus Christ contains the supernatural power which helps sinners of every nationality, every lineage, every stripe, helps all sinners to see their need for the grace of God which is received by faith in Jesus Christ. In order to further grasp this incredible truth, it's important for us to realize that the most powerful way to present the gospel message of Jesus Christ is to simply present people with the truth of God's word. And, and to make my case, I want to consider a point that Paul was making in the letter that he sent to his Hebrew kinsmen. So hold your place here in 1 Thessalonians, and let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Hebrews. I'd like you to turn to Hebrews chapter 4. See, it's here in the fourth chapter of Hebrews where we find Paul. He's helping his Hebrew audience to understand that the scriptures that, uh, the, that we find within the word of God, the scriptures that are in the Bible, they contain the power of God. The, the, the scriptures that we read throughout the entire Bible are filled with the power of God. And with this as the focus, look with me here at Hebrews chapter 4. I want to begin reading there at verse 12. Here Paul declares, The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And here in these verses we find Paul, he's helping his Hebrew kinsmen to understand that the word of God is alive. That's incredible. The word of God isn't just some dead document that came down from ancient times and we read it and just kind of like, oh, whatever, it's... Just another book? No. It's alive and, and it's living. And not only that, but the word of God is powerful. In this case, the word powerful, it's translated from the Greek word energies. And this is the Greek basis for our word energy, of course. This refers to this, this active and effective power. And so we see that the entirety of God's word contains this active, effective energy. And if you think that I'm about to get all new agey on you, I'm not. We're not talking about that kind of new age energy that you know flows through our chi and these sorts of things. No. What we're talking about is the active energy of God, which is contained within the written word that we find in the Bible. And as we consider the entirety of God's word containing this effective energy, this energy then becomes focused and dynamic. It becomes a life-changing power when we present the gospel message from the scriptures. 
When we take the truth of the gospel message from the scriptures, that energy becomes a dynamic power, which then changes the lives of those who will receive it. And in this way, the word of God becomes the seed from which new life springs forth. How could this bring new life to a person unless it's living? How could it it energize new life unless it's actually powerful? The word of God is living and powerful. And it's able to bring new life to those who will receive the gospel of grace. In order to understand this source of power, I want to make our way back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 so that we can consider once again something that Paul is saying. If you would look with me there at 1 Thessalonians 1, we'll take another look at verse 5 where Paul declares, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. In other words, the dynamic power of the gospel message, which stems from the effective energy of the entirety of God's word is delivered by the divine power that's uh, you know, caused by our connection with the Holy Spirit of God. And just for the sake of clarity, I should take a moment to remind you that the Holy Spirit is the third person of our, of our triune God. We believe in one God who has revealed himself in three persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's important to remember that the Holy Spirit is the, uh, the one within the Godhead who empowers born-again believers so that we can go out and accomplish the great commission of Christ Jesus. That's what Paul is saying when he says, hey, our, our delivery of the gospel, it was with words, it was with power, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was empowering Paul to deliver the gospel message. I like the way that Paul explains it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It's here where he declares, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In other words, when Paul brought the gospel of grace to the Achaean city of Corinth, he wasn't relying on his own eloquence. He wasn't, you know... He wasn't saying, hey, you guys believed because I was such an incredible speaker. You couldn't help but believe. It wasn't based on some you know, innate wisdom that he had. He didn't try to persuade the people with the words of human wisdom. No, instead, he relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit as he presented the message of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. And in this way, he was actually encouraging the people there in Corinth to place their faith not in the wisdom of men, not in the eloquence of wonderful speakers, but but rather in the gospel message, which is the power of God for salvation to those who will believe it. Now, in light of Paul's example, it's important for us to understand that the Holy Spirit is here to empower us so that we can present the gospel of grace with power. 
At the same time, we can also rejoice in knowing that the Holy Spirit is simultaneously convicting the heart of the person we're witnessing to. And to prove my point, let's consider the way that the Lord Jesus explains this to his disciples. If you would hold your place here in 1 Thessalonians and let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 16. See, it's here in the 16th chapter of John's gospel account where we find Christ Jesus helping his disciples to understand that the Holy Spirit was being sent to convict the hearts of sinners so that they might embrace the gospel of grace by faith in the sacrifice of our Savior. I want to consider how Christ Jesus puts it here in John 16. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 7, here Jesus declares, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you, and when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now here in this verse, uh, here in these verses, we, we find the Lord Jesus. He's helping his disciples to understand that the helper, who we know to be the Holy Spirit, would be sent. And, and in this sending, the Holy Spirit would bring conviction to the hearts of those who don't yet believe in the gospel message of grace. He will convict their hearts. Why? Because they do not yet believe in Jesus. With that being the case, we can rejoice in knowing that the born-again believer who sets out to present the gift of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can rejoice in knowing that we're receiving supernatural assistance. You see, the Holy Spirit is not only using us to uh, put forth the gospel of grace, but at the same time, the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction to the heart of the person that we're witnessing to. They're getting it both ways. They're hearing it from, from our mouths as the Holy Spirit is working in their hearts. And it's like a Holy Spirit double slam a jamma. And it's a beautiful thing. Because sometimes we're preaching the gospel and we think this isn't impacting them at all. They're not even paying attention, you know. And what you don't know is that the Holy Spirit's in their heart going, hey, hey, you're a sinner. You need to repent. You need to listen to this. And it's incredible to know that the Holy Spirit is working powerfully in that very moment. It's also important to realize that the Holy Spirit was sent to provide us with divine wisdom in those moments. And uh, to prove my point, I would remind you of something that Jesus said in Luke chapter 12. It's there where the Lord Jesus says, now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Incredible. Those who are presenting the gift of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit will also receive the divine wisdom that we need so that we can address those who are challenging our faith. That being the case, we don't need to fear the interrogations of unbelievers who, who are trying to make us feel foolish. We don't need to worry about the antagonism of, of angry atheists who are trying to make us look like we don't know what we're talking about. We don't need to worry about those sorts of things. And as we share the gospel message, you know, if somebody poses a question that we don't really know how to answer, you don't have to let the adrenaline flow. You don't have to worry about what's going on. S simply stop and pray and say, Lord, help me to know how to answer this person right now. And guess who's right there to help in your time of need? The Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit who knows everything? Yeah. 
Yeah, he's right there to help us in that time of need. And so we can rejoice in knowing that the Holy Spirit will help us to preach the gospel with power. Now, this brings us to our third and final point, because listen, the gift of the gospel ought to be presented through preaching. The gift of the gospel should be presented with the power of the Holy Spirit. And finally, the gift of the gospel should be presented with persuasion. Now, to explain what I mean by this, let's make our way back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'd like to draw your attention back to verse 5 once again. Here Paul declares, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for our sake or for for your sake. Now, as we take a closer look at this verse here, it's, it's important to understand that Paul not only presented the gift of the gospel with powerful preaching, but he also presented the gospel message in a way that would, uh, you know, provide assurance that his message was true. Just to be clear, that word assurance, which is found there in the middle of verse 5, it's translated from a Greek word which was used in reference to the confident conviction and the affirming assuredness, which is found in the faith of those who are completely convinced that Christ Jesus has in fact risen from the grave. Simply put, you know, when Paul says that, that this message was delivered in full assurance here, he's reminding the Christians there in Thessalonica about the way that he had presented the gospel message. He, he didn't show up telling third-hand stories from unreliable sources about the possibility of maybe someone might have seen the, 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 the Lord Jesus Christ after he rose up from the grave. Kind of heard a rumor around the way, was, you know, maybe someone, I don't know, it, it might be QAnon, I don't know who said it, but... <clears throat> But somewhere along the way, I heard about maybe just possibly Jesus rising up from the grave. And it sounds like a good story, so let's get on board with it. No, it wasn't like that. He was completely confident, entirely certain about the truth of the gospel message. And and why was he so confident? Well, because he had spent time face to face with the risen Lord. In his testimony, he talks about you know, going to Damascus to go and persecute Christians. And in the process of that trip, found himself face to face with the risen Lord. He wasn't wondering if Jesus had risen from the grave. He knew for certain. He was confident. And his assurance then was was heard in the words that he preached, and this assurance was then passed on uh, to those who were listening. Let's consider again how Paul put it here in our text today. Look with me again at verse 5. Paul declares, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. He's he's saying, hey, you, you know that we were assured of what we were saying. And then the evidence, there in the final portion of this verse, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Now remember, Paul and his traveling companions were persecuted there in Thessalonica. They were persecuted. And and the, the Thessalonians who persecuted them in Thessalonica then followed them to Berea and on forward. And yet, Paul and his companions continue to preach the gospel of grace despite the persecution. 
They were willing to suffer in this way for the sake of those who would embrace the Lord Jesus Christ by faith in the gospel message. And and in this way, Paul's presentation of the gospel was a persuasive presentation. And the reason why is because he wasn't just talking the talk. It wasn't just kind of like, follow Jesus, it's a wonderful thing. Oh, things are getting hard, we're out of here. It wasn't like that. He was willing to suffer. He wasn't just talking the talk, he was walking the walk. I like the way that Paul summed it up in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It's there where he described uh, the way that his commitment to Christ resulted in all kinds of hardships. And he speaks about this in 2 Corinthians 11 as, as labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's describing his commitment to the great commission of Jesus Christ. Paul was a man who was not only willing to preach the gospel message of grace, which in and of itself is a difficult task, but he went further than the preaching. He was willing to suffer persecution for it. And he was willing to suffer the pain of persecution for the sake of those who might believe the good news that sinners can be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. From his example, there should be no doubt that Paul was able to present a persuasive case for the truth of the gospel because of his manner of life. In order to further make my my case here, I want to take a moment to consider the defense that Paul presented during his trial before King Agrippa. And with this as the focus, if you would, let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 26. As you make your way to the 26th chapter of Acts, I just want to take a moment to give you some context here. You see, this all took place after Paul's third missionary journey, and it was then when Paul ended up being arrested at the temple there in Jerusalem, and even according to a prophecy that he had received before ever going back to Jerusalem. Paul knew that if he went to Jerusalem and entered the temple, that he would be arrested, and he went to the temple, and he got arrested because he wanted to preach the gospel. Well, after being arrested, he wasn't going to just sit back and allow this kangaroo court to try him. And being a Roman citizen, he basically appealed to Caesar. And so Paul soon found himself, you know, face to face with the officials there in the area before they sent him off to Caesar. King Agrippa wanted to hear Paul's defense. And it was during this uh, trial before being shipped to Rome That's when Paul presented his case. He presented his testimony. He presented the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And then he began to present his final defense. And it's here in Acts chapter 26, beginning at verse 24. Here Paul presents his final defense. And Luke writes this. He says, now as he thus made his defense, Festus, not to be confused with gun smoke, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. 
For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. How incredible is that? This this king, this politician, you know. He knows all these things that were true. He, he knows that the cross of Christ didn't happen in secret. He, he knows that the resurrection didn't happen in, in a corner. He knows what the Old Testament prophets said. And he, uh, he confesses here. Yeah, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. You know, leading a politician to the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that's, a, that's a supernatural event in and of itself. And this guy was almost persuaded. And while it's true that he didn't actually become a believer there at that trial, there should be no doubt that Paul's presentation of the gospel was extremely persuasive. And the reason why? Well, it's because he was willing to suffer. and He was willing to die for the truth of his testimony. And in light of his example, we should take a moment to examine our own commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ you know, by asking, do I have that same commitment? Because it takes this kind of commitment to Christ Jesus to present the gospel in a persuasive way. With that, I want to examine our own, our own lives by asking, are we willing to suffer for the sake of those the Lord wants us to reach? Are we ready to receive the ridicule and the rejection of those who think that the gospel message is ridiculous? Are we prepared to endure the trials of mockings that will come from those who hate our Messiah? Are we even willing to lose our livelihood so that we, we might be able to lead our co-workers to Christ? Are we willing to lose our friends on Facebook or our social media following by posting Christ-centered information that most people don't want don't to see? If so, then the chances are you are a believer who is able to present the gospel message with persuasive faith. You see, when, when an unbeliever sees a Christian that is completely committed to the gospel of grace so that they're willing to put their entire life on the line, they might not become a believer, but they can't deny that your faith is persuasive. And so do we have a persuasive faith which is grounded in complete confidence in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Sadly, the 21st century church is filled with nominal Christians who aren't really interested in spreading the gospel message. As a matter of fact, it was just last year when a LifeWay research study revealed an alarming trend that's been occurring within the church. And according to their research, listen, only 30% of the respondents actually took the time to share the gospel with a stranger in the past six months. So these are those who claim to be Christian, right? 
Only 30% of those who responded said that they actually shared the gospel with an unbeliever in the last six months. Six months. Didn't share the gospel once. And while 50% of the respondents were ready for an opportunity to share the gospel message, meaning that you know, they're, they're open to it, they're willing to, to share, 50% said they're, they're open to it. Only 15% were eagerly looking for an opportunity to evangelize an unbeliever. 15% of respondents were excited to share the gospel message with an unbeliever. Now, if this data holds true for the entire church, then what this means is that 15% of those who claim to be followers of Christ are actually excited about the great commission of Jesus. Should be 100%. 100% of Christians should be excited about the primary purpose that we've been given here in this world. The one thing that Jesus said we ought to be doing while we're here in this world is preaching the gospel and discipling people in Christ. Everything else is secondary or tertiary or not even on the scale. And yet, according to this poll, only 15% are eagerly looking for an opportunity to evangelize. And only 50% were like, yeah, I'm open to it. Well, how nice. I'm open to doing what Jesus said I should be doing. Thirty-nine percent of the respondents were willing to share their faith. And in light of these numbers, the 21st century church here in America has clearly embraced a culture that has caused many Christians to think that evangelistic endeavors are best left to crusaders like Billy Graham and Greg Laurie. And, well, Billy Graham's in heaven, so Greg Laurie. Yeah, just leave it to Greg Laurie. He'll take care of it. Now listen, Harvest Crusades are great, you know, and yet... The approach is extremely limiting. Last time I was in California, there was a harvest crusade happening. And the stadium was packed, no doubt. And yet there were still way more Californians outside of that stadium. Californians who weren't being reached. Hey, Greg Laurie's doing a great job with the harvest crusades. Praise the Lord. And yet it's still extremely limited. There's only so many people you can get into a stadium. To further explain my point, it'll help you to know that the Lord's plan isn't necessarily focused on these arena-style crusades. Nothing wrong with them, but that's not the plan that the Lord gave us. I'll remind you, it was back in Mark chapter 16 where the Lord Jesus declared, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, just to be clear, I don't think Jesus is calling us to go and, and preach you know, to, to cats. I don't think that's what he means by creatures. Also, we, we already know that all dogs go to heaven just by nature of there being dogs. And, and so we should expect that all cats 
are definitely going to hell. But so there's no point in preaching to cats at all. I know what you're thinking. You're like me now. But uh, no, but seriously, you know, when Jesus tells us to go and preach to every creature, I mean, the the the, the idea is humans. We're, we're to go and preach the gospel to every single person, right? And, and this is something that is given to us at the personal level. You know, he doesn't say, some of you go preach the gospel. The great glories, you go preach the gospel. No. He simply, to all of his disciples, said, you, go. Preach the gospel. Because this is a plan that is effective. Listen, as every Christian takes part in the evangelistic endeavors of the Lord, the rule of multiplication begins to take effect. Think about it. If every Christian in the world today leads one person to Jesus every year, then the numbers of Christians will double every single year. It's just the way it works, right? If every Christian in the world right now leads one person to Jesus in 2023, then there will be twice as many Christians in 2024. And then if that number of Christians leads one person to Jesus in 2024, then once again, that number will double. And within no time at all, the entire world will have been reached with the gospel message of grace. We need to stop relying on Greg Laurie. We need to stop relying on the crusades, as wonderful as they are. We, Christian, have been called to go and to preach the gospel so that we can lead unbelievers to the Lord. And with this as the goal, I encourage every Christian in closing, let's obey the instructions of the Lord and not just obey, let's be excited about it. This is our commission. This is our primary purpose for why he leaves us here on the planet so that he can use us to reach more people. And so let's obey the Lord with excitement by presenting the gift of the gospel to those who haven't yet placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Have you received the gift of the gospel? Praise the Lord. Now share it. Listen, if I show up to your birthday party and you're not sharing your birthday cake with me, I'm upset. What should we say about the Christian who has received the gospel but then doesn't share this gift of the gospel with others? I'm guessing the Lord might be upset with them as well. With that, let's present the gift of the gospel with the clear communication of preaching. Let's present the gift of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. And let's present the gift of the gospel with the persuasion that's seen in the lives of those who are completely committed to Christ Jesus. And as we present the gospel message of Christ Jesus to those who are still lost, let's also pray, knowing that this message sounds like foolishness to those who are too proud to repent. Let's pray. Let's pray that the Holy Spirit would come and convict their hearts and open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. Let's, let's pray that the Lord will use us to help others embrace the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And in this way, we will become those blessed believers who are spreading the good news as we share the gift of the gospel. Let's pray.